Please do remain standing for the reading of God's Word, coming to us from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So hear now the inerrant, infallible, the eternal, the inspired Word of God. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would oversee the feeding of your sheep. Lord, you commanded the apostle Peter to feed and to tend your sheep. And we know that you have made clear that your word is the food of which we are sustained. You have told us in places like Job 23, 12, that you, he had desired your word more than a necessary food. You had Jeremiah in a vision swallow the word whole and ingest it. Lord, we ask that you would feed us by your word. We are in a, a land that is full of famine. There is nothing but lies and have-truths everywhere we turn around. We have no idea which pundit, which talking head, which newsman is telling us the truth. We have reason to believe that none of them are telling us the truth. We have a culture that calls sin good and good evil. We are surrounded by those who will openly propagate bold-faced lies as blatant, as white, as black, and black as white. The sky is red and grass is purple. Uh, we, we live in and amongst that. Lord, we ask now that you would fill our minds and fill our hearts with the truth, the life-giving truth. You prayed, Lord Jesus, in that high priestly prayer of yours in John 17, verse 7, that your disciples would be sanctified and that sanctification can only come through the truth. And that truth is your word. And so we ask that you would do a good work this afternoon by sanctifying the saved and that you would bring under conviction and save the lost by and to the truth of your word. We ask this humbly, but yet expectantly through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, we have begun a new chapter of the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And just by way of reminder, the book of Ephesians breaks down into two halves, primarily two halves. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal, a lot of doctrine in it, and chapters 4 through 6 are practical. Another way to look at it, you can see chapters 1 through 3 being the um, indicatives of the gospel, and then chapters 4 through 6 being the imperatives of the gospel, what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Another way you can look at it in chapters one through three is the calling of the church and chapters four through six is the conduct of the church. So we're now getting into the last 
chapter in this book that's heavily focused upon doctrine, upon truths. Whereas we get to chapter four is maybe how do we live then according to those truths? And there's two major divisions in the chapter three, chapter or verses one through 13 is the mystery of the new covenant church further explained as, as we've been looking at that at the tail end of chapter two, but it's gonna be further explained in the first 13 verses uh, of chapter three. And then the rest of the chapter, 14 through 21, is Paul's prayer for the church. And, and really Paul begins the prayer in verse one. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he just can't help himself by interjecting verses three through uh, 13, uh, or verses two through 13, rather, one more clarifying statement upon the new covenant people of God, the mystery of the church. Then he gets into the prayer. He started it and then he goes back down. Like if you notice in verse uh, 14, he starts with, for this reason, just like he started in verse one, for this reason. So he interrupted himself in that prayer. We're looking at our text today in verses one through six. And the key concept, you heard the word repeated several times, is the word mystery. Now we gotta explain that a little bit because with many things in the Bible, when we hear a word, we can often put on a 21st century English meaning of that word. But the Greek word for this word mystery is musterion. And it is connected to uh, strange religious cultish type groups in the Greco-Roman world. Secret societies where had, that had a religious focus on it that you couldn't know anything that they were doing until you actually got in and they showed you. You had no idea what they were about. You had no idea what they believed, what they taught until you got in there and then it was revealed to you. So that word mysterious, these were musterion groups. And we should be suspect of things like that, right? This is kind of, if you've ever heard of Gnosticism, this is proto-Gnosticism, like it's coming into being at this time where there's secret knowledge and you don't know it, it's not clear, but if you come to me, then I'll show it to you and make that mysterion, that mystery kind of clear. That should, that should cause us a bit of concern. Secret societies certainly draw our curiosity because it seems like, well, what do you know that I don't know? What do you, what do you got going on there? But it should more than that, it should make us suspicious. Have you ever noticed that all the Christian cult buildings have no windows? Mormon buildings, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mason, why don't you have windows? What are you doing in there that we can't see? That should, make a, that should be a problem. So we don't wanna be a part of this kind of mystery cult, but biblically, that word musterion, that word mystery, it refers to the unmanifested or even the private counsel of God. This is the counsel, this is the wisdom, this is the plan, the mind of God that he has at that time not clearly manifested, as clear as he could or as clear as he would. So this is his wisdom that he's chosen to not reveal. This can be universal. So why, we would all have this question particularly, why would he, God even let Satan into the garden at all? He hasn't given us a clear statement on that. We can make some understand, we can draw some conclusions from that, but he hasn't said in chapter and verse, this is why. So that mystery remains here and is universal. But that mystery of God can also be selective. Look at a place like Matthew 13, 10 through 11. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? That's a fair question. Why are you giving them stories instead of just straight up plain truth? And Jesus answered them, to you, it has been granted to know what? The mysteries 
of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So there's a selective area of mystery. So the larger point being, we can't know anything unless God reveals it, right? That, that has to be what we conclude from all of life. If God doesn't make it known, we can't know it. We have to have revelation. That's what, when we hear the word revelation, we always think the last book of the Bible, that might be helpful to call that book apocalypse because that's what it really is, apocalypto in the Greek. But revelation is God's revealing to us. So all of scripture is God's revelation. See, we have things that can be partially revealed, but mysteries remain hidden unless God uncovers them. But when God wants to be clear, he is unmistakable. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Let's look at Abraham's offspring, right? God promised Abraham all of these kids, but let's just look through it. At first, it's fuzzy. Genesis 12, two, and I will make you a great nation. That's it. To a childless man, I will make you a great nation. Well, okay. But then it gets from fuzzy to hazy in Genesis 15, one through four. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. So we went from hazy and then now it's fuzzy, but... Your body is all he said. And so then therefore his connection with Hagar and then getting Ishmael is kind of according to that promise. It did come from his body. But when God wants to be clear, he is. Because he goes in Genesis 17, 15 and following. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she'll be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's like, can you just count him? This is impossible. Verse 19, no, God says, but, your, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So we went from fuzzy, hazy to clear, right? God's making himself more clear. The mystery is becoming more clear. You can see with Jesus, another example, the raising of Lazarus, John 11, 11 and 12. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They're like, Jesus, we don't know a whole lot of stuff, but everybody that goes to sleep usually wakes up on their own. And then Jesus, you can imagine a sigh, verse 13, that Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So we went from hazy to clear. Lazarus is asleep, meaning I'm showing you that I have a power over life and death. And so if somebody's dead in my, to me, they could just well be asleep. So I can bring him right back. And they're like, well, if he's asleep, you don't need to worry about it. He goes, no, he's dead. Fuzzy to clear. And then Jesus also says in another place in John, just as a third example, from fuzzy to clear, John 2, 19 through 20, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He's standing out in front of the Jewish temple at that time. And in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. 
So that's fuzzy, but then it gets clear in 21 and 22. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So this concept of mystery, when God wants to be clear, he's unmistakably clear. There are times and for seasons, he chooses to let it be fuzzy. He chooses to let it be hazy. That's what mystery Paul is talking about. And we have this as a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics, just a fancy word for Bible study methods. We have this as a principle. And the confession, the London Baptist Confession, it says, chapter one, paragraph seven, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Can you say amen? You've been reading in the second half of Daniel and you've been like, I don't know what is going on. But then you read Luke and you're like, I get it. Not everything is clear like everything is clear. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, the confession says, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, so the educated, but the unlearned, the uneducated, in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. That's true. The, un the gospel is clear, right? Justification by faith alone, plain and clear. Genesis 15, six, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He wasn't righteous, but he believed and God counted it as righteousness, as if it was. And then Paul makes it even more clear in Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's clear. We understand the clarity of the gospel, but the human makeup of the new covenant church and God's explanations of it were intentionally obscure until the New Testament. See, who are and who will be included in the covenant community of God was somewhat of a question, if not an outright, just ignored. So the puzzle pieces were there, but they were scattered. Kids, have you ever done a puzzle? And when you do a puzzle, what do you start with? It's a big puzzle. You start with the edges, don't you? You always start with the edges. Now let's imagine a puzzle that looks like this. It has one hot air balloon in the corner and then the rest of it is all blue sky. So what do you do? You start with the edges, right? And then what do you do? You do the hot air balloon next. And then what do you got left now? A bunch of blue pieces that all look exactly the same. All those blue pieces was Gentiles and Jews in the new covenant community in the Old Testament. All they, they were all there but they were the slow process of looking at two identical colors and trying to see if they fit. The, the, the balloons all put together, the edges are all put together, but now you just got big, vast blue space. The pieces are there, but it's harder to connect them. It takes more time. The Old Testament, that's how it was with the Gentiles in the covenant of God. But now the spirit of God through the apostle Paul intends to make crystal clear where all those blue pieces go. And that's what verses one through six is gonna help us with. Look at verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So he's reintroducing himself in some sense. And like I said before, he's starting his prayer that he's gonna continue in verse 14, but he hijacks it in verse two through 13. But for what reason? Verse one, why is he writing? We'll go back to chapter two. 
What's the end of chapter two all about? The church is being built in the temple of God and the individual Christians are the bricks, are the stones in that building, that dwelling of God. That's why Paul is writing. The church needs to be instructed on the church. The church of Jesus Christ needs to know who it is, what it is. What is the church? Can you define it? Is your small group a church? Can you have a church in a deer stand alone by yourself? Is your Bible study at work a church? Can some separate ministry, parachurch ministry, claim to be the church? If God is saving his chosen one by one, which is how he does it, the narrow gate is one person wide, one by one. And if he's adding children to his household, and if he's fitting together living stones to be his holy sanctuary, doesn't he then get to define what the church is? We would absolutely say yes. That's what Paul's been doing for the last half of chapter two. And since he defines it, shouldn't we then understand and apply it? See, Paul's writing to the Ephesians so they will know what the calling and the conduct of the church is supposed to be because verse two, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Paul's instructing them on this because that's his job. He's a steward. He's not an innovator. He's not a creator. His desire is to be a faithful steward. A steward that ends with a D, not a T. A steward is a caretaker of somebody else's property. The owner of the property is not there or is not hands-on in some sense circumstances. And the steward is supposed to just take care of it. If it's alive, to nourish it. If it's a structure, to continually keep it, to repair it to apply the owner's wishes to it. He manages, he protects, he nourishes that which belongs to another. So is Paul with God's church. So are all pastors and elders supposed to be. It's none of our church, it's the Lord's church. And a steward's only responsibility is that he's to be found faithful when the owner comes back. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2. In this case, Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. That's it. Just be faithful. That's why Paul preaches, writes, and prays. According to verse two, he's like, you guys have heard of me. I mean, I lived there for three years and been gone for a while, but you know that I have this stewardship given to me. I didn't apply for it. I didn't, I didn't campaign for it. God gave it to me and my job is to just carry it out. I'm not here making things up. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not an innovator. I'm not a, a cult, I'm not a cultivator. I'm a manager. I'm a steward. I'm taking care of what is not mine. And that's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is by revelation. Verse three, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So as a steward that God has placed in charge, he's been given insight. He's been given revelation. As an apostle, he didn't, or he did receive direct revelation from Christ. He's not creating novel ideas. See, this is the, where the, the logic of, of Bible deniers who wanna claim to be Christian at the same time, they'll say things like, well, I don't really like Paul. I like Jesus, I'm a red letter Christian, but Paul's kind of, eh, you could tell he's kind of grumpy, like a mean misogynist type guy. Like, you know, what did Paul say? I just received all this. None of this is my idea. I'm not trying to create anything. And if you look through 
If you don't have a Bible that does this, I would encourage you to get one. Some of the, you can get Bibles that have Old Testament cross-references made in small capital letters. So you can always tell that it's a direct reference back to the Old Testament or a direct quote. Read particularly the book of Romans that Paul writes, the constitution of the Christian faith. It's nothing but small capitalized letters. It's all Old Testament. Paul's not coming up with any new ideas. This is all directly from God. He's just repeating the words of God given to him. Don't we say that every Lord's Supper just about? What I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, I received it, now I give it. That's all I do. I don't come up with anything new. He's not making the church of Paul. Galatians 1, 11 and 12, for I made known to you brothers, that gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man, Paul included. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching is Christ's teaching. That's all he's after. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. I only follow Christ. He's not an innovator. He's not an entrepreneur. He's just relaying the message given to him by Christ. That's all any preaching should ever be any leadership in any church should ever be. God said this, we do that. That's all that we do. And the mystery that he's been given this insight into, this revelation that he's been handed as a steward, verse four, is coming to him by divine insight. Verse four says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He has insight because he's been given it to him. Remember back in verse 20 of chapter two that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Why? Because they've been given insight. They were told by God directly, direct revelation from God. Now, not everything they said and wrote was inspired. Paul wrote a lot of other letters that are not in the Bible because the Holy Spirit did not inspire those. So they're not in the Bible. It's not that they speak exclusively, inerrantly, like the Church of Rome claims about the Pope of Rome. No, what God inspires, that is what makes it in the scriptures. So they have this direct revelation, all these apostles, so Paul and, and Peter and John and the others, not, uh, but not everything they said was that. Everything they wrote in scripture was. It wasn't their opinions and it wasn't their wisdom. Look at Peter's words and describing that in chapter one, verses 20 and 21 of Second Peter. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, how many prophecies of scripture? None is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. How many? None. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's it. That's how we get our Bibles. But then you go into what we're dealing with is the blue puzzle pieces. There's pieces in the Old Testament. And then how do they come together? Well, they got direct revelation from Christ about it. Look at Peter's sermon and Acts chapter two, the, the day of Pentecost, the flames over their heads, the Holy Spirit coming upon them in a way that he had not done before in the old covenant. He preaches this sermon and listen to how he understands and then interprets the Old Testament. This is Peter speaking. For David says of him, Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that he, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not only abandon, will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness within your presence. That's the end of the quote. Now Peter speaks. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. See, when you're preaching, you wanna make points you know are right. And what's more right? You know what, guys? David is dead and his grave is over there. That's a, it's an easy sell. Nobody's gonna call you on that one. And so, verse 30, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he, Christ, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So that quote from Psalm 19, that, or Psalm 16, that of David that Peter is bringing up in that sermon, what's he saying? He's saying, Peter, the apostle, is saying that that, sermon, that Psalm is actually talking about Jesus. He's taking that Old Testament text and saying, that's really about Jesus. I'm giving you a connection on two blue puzzle pieces is what's happening with Peter right there. When, when, when the, we then rather follow the apostles hermeneutic when we read the Old Testament in light of the new, because Peter's saying, David wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about Christ. So that's the insight that Paul's talking about. The apostles have divine insight. Now, there's also the second part of verse four that we need to notice. Into the mystery of Christ. Divine insight to the mystery of Christ. Was Christ a mystery? Was he mysterious? How could, how, how could Jesus be a mystery? Every Christmas we read the Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled and we, we talk about them. They're in the songs that we sing at Christmas time. How could he be hidden? Well, just stop and ask yourself, when he came, who was actually waiting for him that didn't get tipped off by angels? Count the shepherd, toss the shepherds out. You got three groups of people. You got pagan stargazing religious enthusiasts, Simeon and an old lady named Anna. That's it. Everybody had the same Bible, but you got pagans and two old people in the temple. That's it. They're the only ones waiting for him. Nobody else figured it out without being told, hey, he is the one. Resident Bible scholars, they didn't even see it. You remember when, when uh, the heat's getting turned up in John chapter seven and then Nicodemus, remember he pops up in chapter three, but in chapter seven, you can see him kind of wrestling a little more. He's really starting to think Jesus really might be this guy that we're, we're waiting for, this Messiah. And then chapter seven, verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus before being one of them, this is a, an argument within the Pharisees happening. He said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you're not from Galilee also, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Nicodemus says, hey guys, you're breaking the law by doing this. And they're like, where are you from Galilee too? Check your Bible, Nick. No prophet comes out of Galilee. To which if Nicodemus had been a little more fortified, he would have said, well, actually, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it does speak of this. 
It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So you could see there, Nicodemus could have said, yes, the Bible does talk about a prophet, the one coming out of Galilee. But it wasn't blindingly obvious. That text that we just read, we see it and we connect it, but it doesn't say the Messiah will come from Galilee. Nevertheless, Matthew made that mystery plain. In Matthew 4, 12 and following, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, just like as Isaiah 9. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. All the puzzle pieces were there, but they were all blue. Even the scholars whose jobs was to sit and read it missed it, didn't get it, that the, the that Messiah did come from Galilee and that these Gentiles are gonna be included in. And so verse five of Ephesians three, that this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed. So it wasn't made known then like it is now. It wasn't totally absent before, but it wasn't as clear as it is now. Verse five continues on, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So who knew the identity of the man from Galilee? To whom was the mystery revealed? Jesus, if you remember, he once asked his disciples, they weren't apostles yet. He asked them, who does everybody think that I am? In Matthew 16, 13 and following, Jesus went in the district of Caesarea Philippi and he was talking to his disciples. Who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say I am? And they're like, well, it's all over the map, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist. Others think that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, really just anybody from the Old Testament that had kind of a notable presence. They, they think that that's you. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Doesn't matter. Nothing gets dealt with if you're like, oh, no, no, I know what they say about you. No, no, who do you say that I am? And then Peter in form, keeping with who he is, he answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you hear that and we know that that's Peter's confession, beautiful when, when it gets pointed right to him. And that's the question that everybody has to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the only question that actually has eternal significance. Who do you say that he is? And Peter says, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says this, or Jesus says this in response, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not, what? Reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What were we looking at in verse five of Ephesians three? It has now been revealed. So Peter, you aren't even making this profession by your own chutzpah. You're making this profession because God revealed it to you. 
He opened your eyes to see it and know it. And the same is true for all the apostles on things that come from the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's how Peter knew it. God did not want his apostles to be mystic gurus. We're attracted to that and every other world religion has those. You gotta go climb up the top of some mountain in India to figure out what this guru actually knows is nothing. But the mystique is out there. You know, God didn't want his apostles speaking in vague obscurities that kind of had a hazy aura of spirituality. He didn't intend for them to do that. He made plain to them what they in turn make plain to us by the inspiration of the spirit in the scriptures. That's why Paul says he does. In 2 Corinthians 4, 2, I'm reading out of the ESV because they translate it in a more helpful way. It says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We, meaning Paul and his missionary group, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God by the open statement of the truth. That's what verse five is after. It's been revealed what was not made known in a way in the old covenant, in the new covenant is made unmistakably known. And then their job as those holy apostles is to make it known by the open statement of the truth. See, that's the difference between Christianity and just about every other world religion, or that's a difference rather. What we say is we believe all of this and we don't have anything else. If we hand you this, then you have it all. There's no secret other book. There's no special thing you gotta go through. You can have the whole thing right here. This is it. This is all that we look to. There's no secret. There's no, there's no uh, initiation. There's no like, well, come and try it out. There's not pages and pages of spilled ink on church dogma that goes on and on and on and on like the Church of Rome has. No, it's just these 66 books. That's it. There's no secret. It's just an open statement of the truth. And what is Paul making plain? Verse six is where we land. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. To be specific. So Paul, you can, maybe you read this text before coming to church or when we read it, but when we started, you might've read that and go, man, what is that even talking about? It's kind of all over the place using this word mystery, but then Paul just lands the plane in verse six. To be specific, this is what I'm talking about, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow partakers, and fellow members. That repetition of fellow, or your translation might say together with, together with three times. God doesn't have, we start off with the first one. We start off with fellow heirs because God doesn't have tears of membership in his family, levels. He doesn't have sons and then stepsons and then nephews and then just kids in the neighborhood. No, he has sons only. Romans 8, 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs, 
with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. He repeats himself again in Galatians 4. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. You're an heir, inheritor of the promise. Fellow heirs. See, Jews have no superior standing in the church over Gentiles. If they're saved, it's by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, just like us. Non-Christian Jews don't have a special non-son, but still uh, favored status. They don't have that. They stand in need of mercy or facing hell, just like every other people group in the world. And all those who repent and believe inherit the covenant promise of redemption and justification with God. There are not silver, gold, and platinum packages of the gospel. And you can kind of upgrade your way up into, or maybe you're born into a platinum plan, just don't blow it. It's all the same. Everybody's got the top level. Everybody has full air status. And first John makes it clear, 2.22, who is the liar? So we're trying to identify liars here, according to John, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you are a liar. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter where you live. This is the antichrist. The one who denies the father and the son, whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. So when we see that, we know that there are not levels of status and privilege because of your last name. There is not a people group out there, as some do suppose with the nation of Israel, that they have a special separate status, even though they live in complete denial of Jesus Christ. If they live in denial of Jesus Christ, then what are they? Liars and antichrists, according to 1 John 2, 22. That's all that there is. So then therefore, we are all brought in in the same way. We are all members of the family of God in the same way way by repentance and faith in Christ. And if we're fellow heirs, we're also fellow members of the body. Body parts, they all have different roles and different purposes, but they all have the same lifeblood and they all hear commands from the same head. Think about your body. They don't have special blood that goes to fingers and special blood that goes to the pancreas. No, no, it's all the same blood pumped by the same heart, responding to the same neurosis impulses, neurotic impulses. I have to ask my brother, he's a doctor brain impulses from the same head. Nobody gets other directions, that's it. Redeemed Gentiles are full members of Christ's body, just like redeemed Jews are. They're not mere accessories that are exterior to the body and they're not foreign materials added inside the body. So Gentiles coming into the body of Christ are not shoes or earrings making the body look fancier or making the body more effective. And they're not pacemakers or parasites put inside the body, but have nothing from the blood, nothing from the head. Neither, they're not, neither. Everyone in the church is different, unique, but also an equal member. We don't have time to read it, but if you want to read about the body of Christ, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. That's the, that's the passage all about, about how we function as eyes and ears and, and feet and, and heads. Use that illustration to perfection. But to move on to the third thing in chapter or verse six is the fellow partakers of the promise. What promise? See, we read through these things and we go, yeah, that's great. But 
fellow partakers of the promise, not a promise. What promise are we talking about? Well, Galatians 3, 29 helps us identify it. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So this promise that's connected to Abraham. Well, what promise does Abraham have? Genesis 17, 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. If we have been reborn by faith in Christ, this is what we're doing by adding these texts together, Ephesians, Galatians, Genesis. If we've been reborn by faith in Christ, then we are the descendants of Abraham that God was speaking about. And if we're Abraham's descendants, then God's promise to him is for us. What was God's enduring promise or covenant? It's at the end of that verse seven. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm making you my people and therefore I am your God. He makes us his. That's the promise. Did you ever... If you grew up in the church in the South of the United States, and I know that doesn't include everybody in this room, but if you did grow up in that way, I bet you sang a song as a kid, evangelicalism is good at making real cheesy, bad theology songs for kids. This one is cheesy, yes, but theology is pretty good. If you sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, Father Abraham. You're, you're, and then you start doing it. It's kind of the Christian hokey pokey. It's not as sensual, though. It's a little more theological. Turns out that song's pretty good because you are his sons. If you are in Christ, you're the descendants that we're talking about. And this covenant, this promise that you're brought into, when you hear covenant and promise, think the same thing. It's called the covenant of grace. From Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.21, there is one covenant of grace for the people of God. It arches over from end to end. Underneath are two administrations, an old and a new, but it's still grace. Moses and Rahab and Ruth were saved by the same grace that Peter, James, and John were. It's always been of grace. And that promise starts in Genesis 3.15 in, in vagueness, but it gets clear to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And that's the promise that we are partakers of. And how does it come as we land the plane? How does it come to us in verse six? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's how it happens. We get this magnificent, unbelievable status in the body and the promise of God. And it comes to us in Christ through the gospel. It's not a mystery. It's not anymore. We know how we get there in Christ through the gospel. That's how we become part of the people of God. We not only become heirs and members and partakers by being in Christ, we also get in Christ through the gospel. So the gospel makes us heirs and partakers and members but it also puts us, moves us from Adam to Christ. I'm no longer in this federal head that's condemning me to hell forever. I'm in this federal head, Christ, launching me into eternity with him forever, forgiven in Christ through the gospel. Nothing else is more preeminent in this life for you than the gospel. 
The gospel is everything. And that word has been co-opted by big Eva marketers and become so neutered, gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel music, gospel-tinged, gospel-shaped, gospel culture. The gospel is not a modifier. It is everything. That's what the gospel is. It's not a trendy buzzword. So we have to end here as our application is, do you know the gospel? That's the mystery of Christ. Do you know it? If somebody said, tell me it right now. I mean, think about the situation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. I wish this would happen to me every day. Somebody comes up to me and just says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? That's what happened to Jesus with the rich young ruler. If that happened to you, what would you do? What would you say? Is it right there? Do you have it? Because 1 Corinthians 15 can get you there. One through four. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What's first importance of what I received? So here's Paul again. I just got something and then I handed it to you. All I am is a steward. I'm not an innovator, I'm not an author that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. There's the gospel. How do I respond to that? Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what you do. You're gonna go home today, this evening, and you're gonna explain the gospel to your spouse, another family member, and you're gonna do it succinctly, but clearly. And if you can't do it, why can't you do it? That, that, if that's all we're about, that's all we have, then with, that better be on a hair trigger all the time that we have the gospel ready to roll at a given moment. And parents and grandparents, ask your kids and grandkids, how do people go to heaven? And then run at it from another direction. What makes us right with God? And then run at it from another direction. How do sinners get forgiven? And then run at it from another direction. That's all I do with my kids is run at the gospel from all these different angles to see if they know it. Not because I'm drilling them to be good uh, parrots, because I wanna see if they've actually believed. So we run at the gospel from all these different angles. Do you know? Because everything is hanging on this. This is the mystery that Paul is saying is so clear to us now, that Gentiles are saved in the same way that Jews are saved, through that Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life according to God's law, who died in our place, who was buried for three days and then rose again and ascended to the heavens on high. We know that. That's all we have to offer anybody. And that's what we must get at with our loved ones. This is of first importance in the church and it's of first importance in your home. So we are the keepers of this revealed mystery. The question will be, what will we do with it? We just give it away constantly. Give it away, give it away. We leave it uncovered. We, we leave it a revealed mystery and we say, who wants to know this? I'm, even if you don't wanna know this, I'm gonna tell you it. 
you gotta know this because this is life and death. This is heaven and hell. This is forgiveness or wrath. This is reality. So we come at this gospel because of the end of verse six. We only become fellow partakers of the promise of God, of his merciful, gracious promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us razor sharp with the gospel, not so that we win arguments. Lord, forgive us for our pride and just wanting to win arguments with wanting to own the libs, with wanting to just dominate conversations and prove ourselves to be right. No, we, we wanna be razor sharp, not to be uh, like thrusts of an enemy's sword, but we wanna be useful like, like a surgeon's scalpel on dead hearts. And we know that your gospel is the only thing that will do that work. It's the only thing that will remove hearts of stone and surgically place in hearts of flesh into those who are dead in their sins. It is the, it's the only news that is good. All other news is bad. All other news that anybody else has to offer is to do this and live. And we can't do it. But your good news is Christ did it. And if we believe in him, turning from our sins, then we will live. He did and we live, not we do and we live. Father, may we have it ready on our lips. May we think and meditate on it. Would you forgive us for being bored with the gospel? Would you forgive us for our shallow engagement with the gospel, with our, our hiding of the treasure of the gospel? That there are, are souls around us that are dying and hell is filling. And we have the good news that yanks them from it. Or would you make us bold, but would you even move us past having to think of it as boldness? And would you make us loving and that we would love others enough to make ourselves be uncomfortable, perhaps be ostracized or mocked. And that's about as bad as it's gonna get right now for us, at least right now. But Lord, will we just be loving and not think about it as some uh, massively intimidating thing, but the most compassionate thing that we could ever tell anybody. We wouldn't hesitate to tell somebody that their head was on fire if they couldn't feel it. But we hesitate all the time with telling people the good news of Jesus Christ because they are headed for eternal fire and they can't feel it. So Lord, make us generous, lavish with the gospel. And may it be in our homes and in our church that we, we love to speak about, to discuss to marvel at the gospel. Would you renew in us a wonder for what it is for your son to have come and been destined to come before the foundations of the world, to come to, to take on the body and the image of sinful man, though not being a sinner himself, and to die on the cross and that we would move past just mere wounds and, and air leaving his lungs, but we would see your wrath poured out to the dregs on him at the cross of, of what hell would be eternally for everybody that you would save. All of that was born by our savior. May we never get tired of that. And may that love, that great love with which you loved us, like chapter one says in Ephesians, may that be what drives us to live faithfully in such a dark 
and downward spiraling world that we know the Christ of the gospel. And faith in that Christ is what makes us fellow heirs of the promise you gave to Abraham so many centuries ago. We thank you, we praise you. Tune our hearts to sing your praise as the God of the gospel. And we ask this all in Christ's name, amen.